0: What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness, in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. When you get hit, there's this feeling of humiliation, A loss of control. I really thought boxing would help me overcome my demons. Instead, it pushed me to the edge. So starts Fight Like a Girl, an award-winning documentary by Jill Morley, a writer, filmmaker, and boxing instructor in Los Angeles. The film takes viewers into the world of passionate female boxers as Jill trains for the Golden Globes competition in New York. It's narrated by her and was filmed over five years. An overview on IMDb reads from world champions to amateurs training for local tournaments, Jill discovers they all have a lot in common, the real emotional history and traumas bubble up, fleshing out a compelling story about women overcoming adversity, suicide, abuse, sexism, depression, and racism. I first spoke with Jill about fight like a girl in 2015 I watched it for a second time over the weekend and was again moved by how personal it is. Boxing did eventually play a role in Jill's healing process, but not before, as she put it, pushing her to the edge. Today I'm going to share highlights from our first conversation where we covered everything from her motivation to make the film and her days as a stripper to a scene where she talks to her childhood abuser. Then I'll share a where are they now style catch up chat we recorded last week. Later in the show, Dr. Megan Fleming will weigh in for a listener who wants to feel more connected to her body and her boners. If you would like to experience more pleasure, please head to thepleasurechest.com to explore the latest sex toys and other pleasure products like lubes, condoms, and massage candles. All month long, you can shop their special pride collection and they're offering free shipping through June. One awesome product that caught my eye is the Avant Trans Pride Dildo, which pairs well with G-Spot, P-Spot, solo, hands-free, and partner play, and features the beautiful trans flag colors. So back in the studio in 2015, I asked Jill Morley why this particular film, Fight Like a Girl, and its story
1: felt so important to her to create and share with the world. Well, it's interesting. I think in the beginning, I was a little afraid to get it out because it's so personal, and I opened myself up. I mean, I basically open a vein, almost literally, yeah. <laughs> you know. And uh, so it was hard for me to show it to people because they would know things about me. Sure. But now it happened so long ago, those events that um, I see it more as a tool to help people, mm. and also I. I feel like I'm a different person now. So to show that film to people, I I feel very different. You know, I feel more like, you know, I hope this can maybe encourage you in some way.
0: Early on in Fight Like a Girl, Jill talks about her fascination with Boxer's desire to fight. She's not the only one with that curiosity, especially when it comes to women in the ring. When she asked Susan how people respond when she says she's a fighter, she said that people often say, why? You're such a cute girl, why would you want to get hit in the face? Another professional fighter named Kimberly described boxing as viscerally satisfying. Then she talked about an experience that inspired her to start training. She'd been working as a stripper, and one night a customer became aggressive with her. When she resisted, he got angry, she said, and punched her in the face. She knew she had to do something about that. I can see how that would feel empowering, you know, stepping into your own strength after someone else used theirs against you. And it makes sense that boxing seems to be healing for many women and femmes. That wasn't why Jill made the film, though. Looking deeply at her own wounds because of it,
1: it sort of came as a surprise. Well, originally I just I've always loved doing athletics. I mean it keeps me in shape and it keeps me, you know, I have I guess I have a lot of testosterone or something because I, you know, I played tennis. So I like hitting things. Really well, by the way. In oh. the
0: movie, I was just like, my <laughs> God, what doesn't she do? No,
1: no. I'm so impressed. Only tennis and boxing, and actually the tennis has fallen way back. <laughs> well, you're busy. <laughs> but it's okay. Um Yeah, so I wanted to do something competitive and I wanted to do a combat sport. And at first I tried my hand at Taekwondo, and I did it for like five years. I got my black belt, but it wasn't satisfying. So I, um, and then I met my husband and he was doing Muay Thai, which is a kickboxing style. So I did that for a while, but then I realized, you know, I just like the punching part. And also I get really, I I want to use the word turned on by boxing. Like I love the movement. I like the slickness. Mm -hmm. I like, you know, a fight can look beautiful in boxing, whereas in the others. They can't. They don't look so beautiful. Like they're not. They that is so <laughs> interesting.
0: I've never thought of.
1: Of it's almost a dance in a way. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's a, it, it's physical chess.
0: Ah, physical chess and. Everything you're saying—it sounds like you really
1: found your passion. Oh yeah, I did. I mean, God, I wish I was so much better at it. But um, but I was—I just loved to do it, and I like figuring it out. I like the feeling when you're improving or when you practice something and you're able to use it in the ring, all that kind of stuff. So yeah. So I, I met these women. I met Susan and Kimberly, who were really cool women, and I thought, well. I want to tell their stories, you know, and maybe what I can do is I can use my boxing as a timeline, like for the Golden Gloves. And in a year, I will train for the Golden Gloves, focus on them, and then um, and then end it, you know, when whatever, however I do in the Golden Gloves, fine. And then I also met Maureen Shea, who's a pro boxer who um, actually has a lot of similar issues as I do. So my plan to shoot in in a year and end the film did not happen. <laughs> it wound up taking five mm. years and then like another two years to edit. Um So it took a total of seven years to like really get the film out. So during the course of the training and the sparring, when I started sparring, I start to like hyperventilate sometimes or I get panic attacks in the ring. And I, I realized it was from abuse i had, had when i was a child now i had talked through this abuse when in my you know when i was younger i thought i was totally over it you know i forgave the person but the thing is your body remembers the abuse
0: the muscle memory
1: yeah oh wow so when it was happening it would bring me back and it would make and I used to hyperventilate like that when I was getting hit. Oh my goodness, that so was like PTSD. it was And then I got diagnosed with PTSD, and I was like, really?
0: <laughs> wow. So did you feel like it allowed you to further your healing, like there was healing that remained, or did it kind of just reopen
1: those wounds that had healed? Well, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, because mentally, I could process everything, yeah. but physically, I was still triggered. Mm. Right? So until you get triggered physically, you can't, you know. But I don't know if I handled it the best way because I kept going in there and getting my head beat in by people who are very good, who were being told by my coach, try to knock her out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Try to beat her. <laughs> Let's try to make her quit. And I wouldn't quit, but I would never get better. <laughs> and so you kept having these episodes
0: of these panic attacks and all the PTSD coming, and you kept on going into the
1: ring because I was so upset with myself I'm like you are such a loser you can't do this like you should be able to do this like my father was a boxer so I was just upset with myself it was typical of what I one of my faults is just being way too hard on myself putting too much pressure on myself and making the whole boxing thing about that my self-esteem was that like I couldn't separate it and this is like I'm not even a young person I'm like a grown woman still doing that at a certain point, I had I suffered a breakdown of sorts, which you know you can see in the film, and then afterwards I switched trainers and I started working with people who, when I got in the ring, they would teach me really good technique, and they weren't trying to kill me. <laughs> you know, they let me in boxing. We say, hey, do you, do you want let's work? Okay, let's work, and that means let's not try to beat each other up. Let's try to just sure. tag each other and like do it for technique. And that was how I really learned wow. is that once people were willing to work with me and I didn't have to suffer um, for the bad form and the bad doxing I was doing, then I was like, oh, now I can. I see. Okay. And I'm I mean, I a little bit of a slow learner with that. But I mean, boxing, it's just like no other. You know, I mean, you're getting in there and you're fight and flight are in there. And um, my flight and my freeze, fight, flight, or freeze, and my freeze was going in. Mm -hmm. And now my fight comes in. I might freeze a little bit, but I'm a little bit more relaxed when I'm doing it. And then I'll be like, okay, I'm going to wait for an opening and then I'm going to fire back. Whereas before it was just like ah. <laughs> oh
0: wow! So once you realized that it was actually PTSD and and emotional past issues that were resurfacing, did simply knowing that then change your experience, or did you still have to kind of,
1: you know, work through, not having those reactions? I had thought it would help me, and then it didn't. I kept having those reactions, and I'm like, well, damn it! Like, you know. But then um, I started to, you know, I was in therapy, but I started learning more about breath and breathing. Um, I started telling myself, like, don't be hard on yourself. Like, no matter what happens, don't get upset with how bad you are. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> and I just, and I would just let myself go, and and I'd do sloppy, crappy things, and I'd be like, okay, okay. Until eventually, those sloppy, crappy things weren't as sloppy or crappy, you know, and I was starting to get some form and get get there. And it was just a long road you know, and people being patient with me and people really showing me this is how you punch, this is how you block, this is how you step, you know, Um, and then I was able to get past it, and uh, I don't have that in the ring. I mean, even if I'm getting attacked in that way, I I move, like, I, I know what to do, and that's, I also have confidence now, like, I have good defense now, like, I know what to do when someone's coming after me, you know. She added that that helps her not freeze or break down crying the way she used to.
0: As I mentioned in that interview, I thought there were so many great life lessons in what she shared on the importance of having a support system, the difference between surrounding yourself with like-minded people who support your growth versus not, and that, as Dr. Megan often points out, we all start out as a beginner in new pursuits. Like Kimberly, the pro fighter I mentioned earlier, Jill spent time working as a stripper before her boxing path took form. In the film, she said she was attracted to the subversiveness and grittiness involved. And it's pretty cool to see her fiercely fighting in the ring and then these flashback photos and clips of her seducing an audience as she works a pole
1: that 's like my favorite thing to show people, but um when I was an actress i was i was a tomboy i i was not i did not know how to do makeup hair or nothing i'm not'm I'm like a little better now but and then um I would go on auditions. I wear my black jeans, my black sweater, and my cowboy boots. And like, I find. Then I moved in with. Uh, I had a gay man as my roommate. and He helped me. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I was ran out of money. I'm like, I don't know how to make money because I I get fired every time I tried waitressing. I <laughs> like three times. <laughs> I really suck at it. In. <laughs> just, I just get all like overwhelmed by yeah. all this stuff, and like, I can't remember. It's things. hard. I think. Oh my god. I was god. never able to. Yeah. Oh, I just sucked at it then I, I would do catering and then after the winter that then like there's no time until the spring there's no money and i asked a friend of mine well what do you do and she said well i go to new jersey and i go go dance you can wear keep your top on there and you can make money you know and i came with i went with her one time and it was at a sports bar in hackensack and these like guys like mechanics and you know truck drivers and whatever are just like giving them dollars and it's an afternoon shift and there was nothing like Compared to like music videos that we have now, like, oh my gosh, it was yeah. nothing, it was oh, yeah.
0: nothing. Stripping used to all be on the stage, as, I, as I've learned, Right, you know, that it was just more of just a,
1: a dance. It wasn't like you're actually in the mosh pit of men who no. are, yeah. So we were on the stage wearing our little go-go outfits and then we'd come down and take a, take a tip and go back up on stage. And uh, I thought it was hilarious as well. (laughs) And then, too, I thought, like, I never saw myself that way as Mm -hmm. a girl that was attractive Mm -hmm. to men or to many men, like, unless they, like, really knew me and thought I was funny or something, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So... Between me and then having the gay roommate here, like, he's helping me with my outfits and my, teaching me how to walk in heels. And, <laughs> and, then, um, and I started doing it, and I thought, well, at the time I was writing and performing um, comedic monologues. I I'd come from an improv background, and so I thought, well, this is the best material ever. So I wrote uh, different characters based on the women I met, and I had a through line, and it was called True Confessions of a Go-Go Girl.
0: Critically acclaimed I read
1: That's yeah incredible. it was uh, I wrote it when I was very young, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do it on uh, off off Broadway and to uh, like be able to feel the audience out and to change the material wow. until it became something that I felt was tight and good and um and we got a lot of I mean I think it was a little ahead of its time because I don't think people would. I mean, I I basically did a play in like a thong bikini. I mean, I had a biker character. I had a, you know, this character, that character. So you know, at that time, it was kind of like if you wear a thong bikini, you can't have a brain, or if you have a thong bikini on, you can't really have talent like that kind that you can't write certainly or be a writer actor. So it was. uh, It took a while. We would get seedy people coming in to see the show, not really knowing. And then finally, um, we did start to get, I, I was acting as my own publicist. And I got um, I got Time Out to see it, I got Village Voice, and we started getting great reviews. And then I, I acted as my publicist and wrote a letter to the New York Times with these good reviews and they actually came and reviewed it. And we got a great review and we were on the front page in the theater section. Incredible. With a picture. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is incredible. And I mean, this is a little... Like, we were in a teeny little, like, upstairs next to a bar, like, theater. Like, I couldn't believe they even came. But luckily, by then, I had been doing the show for a year or two. So I had honed it, you know. Like, if they saw it in the beginning, I wouldn't have gotten the great review that I had gotten.
0: That reminded me of what Jill shared about her healing process. Both took longer than she had hoped early on. And in both cases, the effort she invested and even the timing turned out to be well worth it. Jill and I also talked about body image challenges, which came up a few times in the film. I asked her how common these trials are in boxing and whether or not boxing can help.
1: I think it could help in her I think it's common in women. I think all women have freaking, I mean, very few that I know don't have, it. you know. I mean, as we get older, like I know I, I also had an eating disorder when I was in um, high school and college. I was bulimic and anorexic, you know. It didn't get totally out of hand. And honestly, I think antidepressants were the thing and, and you know, just trying to the therapy really helped me overcome that, Good. you know. It wasn't until I started teaching tennis that, like, I started to get fit again and eating well. And, like, sure. I started to be like, oh, now I'm, I'm starting to like my body. I can accept the flaws. And you're using your body. I'm using my so body. you're feeling capable. Capable, and, and for me, it also gives me a little bit of a high and for me too, it, because um, I suffer from depression, it, it, it'll pop me out of the depression even just for that time I'm exercising. You know, I actually just coming out of a d- little bit of a depression now. I was depressed the last four days or yesterday I came out of it. And um, I mean, a couple of events, some of it's just chemical, I don't know. Yeah. But I, I do know what to do now. And I know I just think to myself, okay, this is gonna pass. Some people binge eat; I binge sleep.
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> I need to yeah. go to bed. <laughs> and you let yourself get what you need. You you let yourself. Some,
1: yeah, rest. I do. I mean, sometimes I'll try to fight it, and I'll, I'll have coffee, and I'll do, but I'll be like, you know what? This is not working. Just let yourself sleep. You're gonna, this is gonna pass, and you can be really productive again because I'm all about being productive, yeah. you know. But the exercise I would make myself do, and when I do it, it gives me that little bit of a. for the day Mm -hmm. you know Yeah, Uh, it's very important and I mean actually after I'm going to be I had a fight a week ago I'm going to be doing another fight in about a week and a half and then after that I'm going to be working like non stop on a production on another film. Wow. And I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about not having the, the boxing in my life or not having that amount of exercise that I currently do, you know?
0: Mm, sure.
1: And more for my head than for my body, because now I know how to eat and all that stuff.
0: But. Right, right. Yeah, I remember the shift from exercising to try to change or fight my body versus for emotional and mental strength. It's very, very different, you know? And I feel like we get in a much better shape in all ways when when we start doing that at that point in our conversation I talked about my one experience with boxing I was part of a documentary style reality TV show that ended up getting canceled and I was training to fight half of us were actors who had never boxed before including me and the other half were pro boxers all women I told Jill how difficult it was for me and others in the ring early on to punch other women Jill, though, she seemed to love and embrace the act of punching in the context of boxing to really get something meaningful out of it. Talking about that led us into one of the bravest parts of her film.
1: It feels like with each punch, I'm letting something go, mm. you know. Sure. Um, and then with hitting people, hitting girls or hitting other women, I, I'm still a little like if I have a new sparring partner, I go very light. I will stop sometimes and say sorry or are you okay? Like, especially if it's a new sparring person, if it's someone who's a professional boxer who does this, I might just stop and look if I catch them and I see they're usually almost always okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, um, but other than that, I mean, we're both making the choice to go in the ring and right. to do that, you know, um, and, but, you know, I know still after nine years, the sorry will come out of my, my mouth sometimes if I feel like I caught someone with too much of a clean, hard shot Mm. and maybe they don't they're not very
0: experienced something you said reminded me of this really powerful scene early in your film where you're talking to your mother and it seems that your relationship with her was was quite complicated and that conversation I thought was so brave do you want to tell us about what that experience was like she was recalling your childhood more of the happy times and you recall abuse. Right. So what
1: was that like for you? Well, the thing is, my my mother was my abuser. I also just had like, she's like, you just look at everything half empty. I also think I just was depressed as a kid. I mean, it could be just because I was being abused. But it could also be just because I'm just wired in this dark way. I don't know. You know, so there's a little bit of both to it of why I am the way I am or why I Look at life the way I do.
0: Sure, you know. Interesting. I thought it was really brave of her too. It was very to talk
1: brave with of her, you. and um, you know, I'm very grateful to her for for being in the film and for doing it. Um, I know she chose to be in shadow. I don't blame her. It's fine. But she, it also, it's helpful in healing because I know so many people like their abuse. They can't even talk to their abusers, or their abusers won't admit what happened, yeah. and it makes them feel crazy. You know. Yeah. Whereas like, you know, I know what happened. I forgive her. I want to move past it. And then thank God the, the boxing helped me even more move past it. Amazing. And what is your relationship like with her now? It's okay. It's pretty good. I mean, we, you know, I, whenever I go to New York, which is often, I go and see visit her in New Jersey. You know, same with my dad. It's not like we're not like really close, you know. But I kind of like to keep people at bay sometimes. The other thing is like I don't want to throw my mom under the bus. You know, I really don't like that's not the whole purpose of this. Right. And so, yeah, I would avoid it in, in the past works, you know, for sure. Um, also, it did, I don't see it as something that defines me, you right. know, so that also is a reason, you know. It
0: seemed to me was that you were
1: exploring in front of
0: all of us. You know, you were challenging these thoughts and these feelings and, and trying to gain
1: understanding and I thought it was so respectfully done, truly. Thanks. That means a lot to me because I was really worried about that one when it came out because I'm like, God, I don't want to feel like my mom threw my mom into the bus because she also suffered from abuse and worse than what I suffered and also has mental illness and also, Mm -hmm. you know, so I get it, you know, Um, it just happened and now it's over and, you know, we move on and and I learned a lot from it. That's what we have to take, you know.
0: Toward the end of our conversation, Jill spoke about one thing she feels really skilled at, something she seems
1: to have more assuredness around than boxing or any sport, really. I have always been pretty open with my emotions and my feelings, like in my play with true confessions, like people are like, wow, that's so raw and honest, like not to like pat myself on the back, but it's the one thing I do well, you know what I mean? Well, being yeah. very, yeah, I mean, very modest, no, but, I mean, but it's you like, do it like well. That's well. the thing, like if there's anything about the work that I do that I'm... You feel that's your biggest that's, strength. That's the thing. And it, part of it is just because it makes me feel less alone. Mm. It makes other pe- people feel less alone. You know, when you hear their I just actually heard Amy Schumer on a podcast of some sort, and she was just saying how that's what she's interested in, is like the grossest, most awful, like you don't talk about it stuff. Yeah, and I was laughing.
0: I'm like, me too. Oh, totally. <laughs> Mine just comes out in sexuality and boners and stuff. Right. <laughs> you know. That last part reminded me of one of my favorite quotes by Gloria Steinem: "The truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off." In the last week, there has been so much hurt, outcry, and action in response to the killings of Black people by police. George Floyd in Minneapolis, Breonna Taylor, who should have turned 26 last week, and Tony McDade, a trans man who police shot in Tallahassee two days after George Floyd's death. When I spoke with Jill by Skype early last week, positive signs that protests work from chokeholds by law enforcement becoming illegal to cities like LA and Minneapolis committing to defunding and dismantling police departments hadn't unfolded yet. And by the way, I've been learning about what defunding entails, and it's not doing away with law enforcement as some people think. As one example, it prevents overfunding and helps ensure that police aren't called when, say, a social worker or mental health professional would make more sense. There are literally... Positive examples all around the world now, though, that the protests and speaking out has been helping. And hopefully, there will be many more to follow. And of course, still, much more work remains to be done. So, Jill and I spoke a bit about that and also explored early messaging around sex and sexuality, the role go go dancing played in her sexual self discovery journey, how her mental health has been lately, and more. As a heads up, we did talk a little bit about date rape at one point. We started with an update on her film and latest projects.
1: Fight Like a Girl, it's still on Amazon Prime. Um, I got a lot of good reviews and um, a lot of people emailing me saying it's helped them. So that's been really great. Um, And then, yeah, I continued boxing and now I'm coaching. And I started a business, Flag Boxing L.A., Flagboxingla.com is the website, and so I'm coaching women now, and often helping them through their issues um, through boxing. So, and right now I'm teaching a lot of Zoom classes, uh, which has been interesting. So I'm getting women from all over the country are um, signing on on my Wednesday nights or Sunday afternoon classes, and it's been something that's been really feels really good to bring everyone together and see everyone working out since we're you know all confined. <laughs> um, and then I, I wrote, um, I've been working on screenwriting the last four years because um, the documentary filmmaking was getting really, it's, it's very difficult, you know, and I'm not one to, uh, I'm not great at getting grants and like hobnobbing with people. I kind of just want to you know, box and be with my dogs and my husband and write, and I just felt like writing was going to be better. So I wrote a screenplay called See Jane Fight, and it's actually won, um, or been a finalist in a bunch of competitions, and uh, I was I attended a, a writer's lab in Middlebury, Vermont with some really great mentors, And um, and right now we're focusing on finding a director and getting talent involved and getting that produced. So that's been um, really exciting.
0: Wow. That is beautiful. Congratulations. I cannot wait to see the film. I want to go back to something you mentioned about coaching people. You said women from across the country, some around the world, and you're helping them through issues, which I think is so profound given your own journey and what we learned about you and the healing process and the self-awareness and growth you were gaining through your experience with boxing and that you're paying that forward. What kinds of uh, topics are coming up or, or issues or challenges are people coming to you with that you're seeing growth through boxing?
1: Uh, well, right now, I think it's, you know, it's currently it's the pandemic. Um, but besides that, there's um, a lot of people I work with have survived domestic abuse. And um, I have one woman who I trained here in L.A. who said that after a few months of training, she started to feel like she was good at boxing. She used to have nightmares where she would think someone was attacking her, like choking her in her bed, like she would see the person choking her. And it would happen almost every night. Once she learned how to box, she said she stopped having those nightmares. She just felt more empowered. And that's the, those are the kind of stories I want to hear. For me, it it healed me too, like from being, um, abused as a young kid, you know? Um, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's counterintuitive to think you can heal from a, a violent sport, but it's true and it, it happens over and over. And especially it's great for women to, feel it, to feel like you can defend yourself, like there's power. And and I'm not saying you're, you're going to go out and use it on people, <laughs> but it's really more for, you know, feeling strong and getting into a mindset that you're, you know, that you have agency.
0: Yeah, that is so big. I, I haven't taken boxing classes, but I did take some really intense self-defense classes. And I really appreciate what you said about the strength that you recognize in your own body it felt so healing to me, and found it really interesting that we so many of us were kind of fighting in inner battles. Like it was, it was almost like without even knowing on the surface what it was that we were fighting against. Maybe not right away. Sometimes people came in with their specific experiences they were healing from. Um, in my case, though, I had some things come up that i was I didn't realize until later, kind of what i was what I was grappling with, and it's a it's a beautiful way to to have that sense of autonomy. and, as you said, agency. And I think that plays such a huge role in all types of empowerment, uh, including sexual empowerment because things like boundary setting and consent and standing up for ourselves plays such a huge role in in pleasure and intimacy. Have you? experienced that yourself or have you seen other people flourished in their own sexual empowerment journeys through boxing?
1: I would say, I mean, it gives them more confidence and I don't, I try not to be um, invasive when I'm talking, you know, like I, I don't really ask them personally so many things like that, but I do think that, yeah, absolutely with respect to your own boundaries. And the, you know, the, the problem is that it's more that we're not raised that way. We're not raised to be like telling like I'm going to tell my partner what I'm comfortable with. (laughs) You know, I mean, the way I was raised a long time ago is we don't talk about that stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, coming up now, you know, of course, we want to talk about it. It's, you know, it's normal. It's what should be done. You know, for my generation, that wasn't a thing. I hope, you know, the women coming up now, they're being more encouraged to, again, have agency with their own sexuality, you know.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's interesting. I I ask a lot of people about what they learned about sex and sexuality growing up, and it ranges. But for the most part, I would say there still is a huge gap as far as just this gap of of silence. <laughs> you know, of this yeah. that it's still taboo. Although I do I do see positive change moving into teens and into adulthood, partly because youth are driving it themselves. You know, taking um, that initiative to be like, no, I need to know this stuff because we learned so little in schools where sex ed is still not required in a lot of states. It's not mandated to be medically or scientifically accurate in a lot of states. And some people know, learn nothing about consent in those classes. It's all about like stis and menstruation. When we talked a few years ago, I didn't ask you a question that I ask, a lot of my guests, and I'm curious. Mm-hmm. You mentioned there was this code of silence around sex and sexuality. Is there anything that you remember that stands out from your
1: memory? What did you learn? Honestly, i you know you know my history. I I became a go-go dancer um, in my early 20s, and you know this is you know I this is someone who I went to Catholic school. I went to a Catholic college, <laughs> and here I am trying to earn living um, as an artist in New York, and I go. And I'm like a preppy, asexual person going in. And I think that, you know, for me, that awakened my sexuality a a lot. I think I I learned more about opening myself up to it that way. I mean, I learned too what what felt good and what felt wrong. And by wrong, I just mean like my boundaries were not very good at the time. And I didn't understand why I was feeling bad sometimes. And I realized, oh, it's because they're <laughs> violating my boundaries and yeah. uh, and I'm not doing what I need to do about it because I wasn't taught that, you know, and even I just was thinking recently about how with consent and the whole Me Too thing, because, you know, a lot has happened since we last spoke. I, I realized I was date raped in college and I didn't even realize it until last year, <laughs> you know, yeah. like. And also, you know, I'm, I pride myself on being on, well, I'm tough, you know, all that stuff. But that doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that something happened against my will. And I blame myself, you know, mm, and yeah. I was angry. And I just think of, because I always said, oh, no, I was never, no, that's never happened to me. I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I remembered that. I'm like, that, that did happen. And I I didn't want that. And I I remember being very depressed afterwards and having issues functioning, you know, in college. And um, that, you know, that's it's really sad that 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 didn't occur to me, you know, that that it wasn't my fault that that I, I had the right to be like to tell some rich white college boy, get the fuck off me, you know? Yeah.
0: And that is not an uncommon experience because of the fact that date rape is probably the least respected in some ways for lack of a better word just meaning that people think that if it's someone that you're dating it wasn't as bad or it wasn't even bad (laughs) you know there's still some belief around that yeah that that it was just well you're you're dating this person so they didn't attack you and it's like well actually it happens a lot
1: yeah, and just because I want to kiss you doesn't mean I want you to touch me or that I want to have sex with you, you know. But this, like, it's like in the old decree of things, it was just, you know, well, if you kiss a guy, like you're asking for it, you know. Right.
0: I've even heard people say, you still hear this a little bit now, but if if um, you're in a heterosexual um, experience and you are going out for dinner and the man pays for your dinner, then you owe them some sex, you know, it becomes this, this weird transactional thing, which is great if you're a sex worker, but not if you're trying to navigate intimacy, you know? So it's, it's a really strange, strange thing. Having that realization, I'm sure there are mixed emotions because sometimes when we realize something about our past that's dark And then we realize, oh, that is why I felt depressed at that time, or that is why I was struggling in this way. I think it can really foster self-compassion and and awareness can be empowering, but I think it can also be frustrating and sometimes bring up a lot of really valid negative emotions. How did you feel when you made that realization?
1: I'm fortunate that I'm in a much better place today. I've done a lot of work on myself over the years, you know, so I I had a lot of compassion for myself and I was more mourning the system that, or that the lack of education, which is why I, I was feeling that way, you know, or had those thoughts or that I didn't realize it. And I'm really happy that today women are talking about things. I mean, I'm still uncomfortable sometimes talking about my sexuality. Um, and it's ridiculous. I'm a grown woman, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's a natural part of our lives that, that we should, discuss. And the more we talk about it and normalize it, the less fucked up it's going to be. It's so true. Yeah. And I
0: think it's interesting. I think that as a culture, we've given more permission and expectation actually to boys and men to be vocal about sex and sexuality. Um, But I think people all across the gender spectrum really struggle with authentic sexuality and talking about the vulnerable aspects. We might hear a a man talk about sex in this like, you know, that was awesome kind of way, whereas maybe a, a woman in his peer group might feel uncomfortable doing so. But he also might be somebody who has trouble talking about, I don't have desire right now. Like I'm not really interested in sex right now. And I I know there's this expectation that I'm supposed to be turned on all the time. I'm not, I'm not a man, like all these different messages right. that, that we learn. Um. Yeah. I'm really glad that you were able to have that self-compassion. You know, you realized it in a time when you could really handle it too, which I think is really beautiful. When we last spoke, you mentioned that you were coming um, out of a period of depression where you were sleeping a lot. I think you commented that Some people binge eat. You at the time were binge sleeping (laughs) and you had accepted that as part of this is what I need to do in the midst of the pandemic. I know a lot of people are feeling more depressed, more anxious. I've also heard people who are struggling with mental health issues. Some of them have said, now you know what it's like for me to have, Mm. you know, X, Y, and Z. We're all very unique in our experiences. What can you share about your mental health at this time or what you've been learning through the pandemic?
1: Through the pandemic, I mean, I work from home. I'm an introvert. It didn't, I mean, I do, I go out and I coach people. But um, the only change for me is I'm, I am was teaching Zoom classes, really. And um, because I'm writing, I can disappear into my projects and into my imagination. I, you know, I'm not on social media at that point. I'm not thinking about what the world is coming to and worrying. I'm just kind of into my project, you know, or just going to their In the beginning, of course, it was frightening or constantly looking to see what was happening next and what are the rules are we allowed where are we allowed to go do we bring our own bags to the grocery store or do we not you know it's like mm-hmm. things are changing every day and then really what helped me was teaching these zoom classes i have a responsibility i know on these certain days and i'm privately coaching people on zoom too so it's like it gives me something to get ready for and to do and so i something to gear up for something to have energy for and to give and when you're depressed when one of the best things to help heal depression is to give of yourself to help other people and i'm also of an age where that's says i feel like it's my lot in life now like not that my time has passed but that i'm on the other side of something and i feel kind of a responsibility to be giving uh, also i don't have kids and i have a very nurturing side to me so that helps me i guess cope with the pandemic, I feel like I'm making a difference, which, Mm. you know, that's, that's the big thing that I guess we all want to feel when you're not making a difference and you're just feel like you're just, you're at home, you know, looking at all the things on Facebook, you're, it's, uh, you know, it's pretty easy to spiral into a really bad place, but when you have to be ready and like, Oh, I got to teach my class at seven. I've got like 20 people who are waiting for me that, mm-hmm. that they're going to get their workout in and we're going to do this together, you know. Of course, in light of very recent events of the protests and the Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, this is something that is close to my heart. And it is really, it's just so sad to still see this inhumanity right up mm-hmm. in our faces. And as people say, it's been going on. It's just being filmed now. And um, it's just so hard to believe that that still exists and is maybe even being fostered by our, is being fostered by our administration, you know? Sorry. Mm -hmm.
0: Even your dog agrees. Yeah. Yeah. I am with you there. Each time there's a very public awareness around the brutality of black women, black men, black trans people. It's, it's really, it's horrifying. And you always hope that this will be the time that it's a healing crisis, that, that there's no good in what happened, but that it could be a catalyst for positive change. Do you feel like there's positive change starting to happen at all? Have you seen reasons for hope?
1: Um, My reasons for hope is that I feel like, you know, if you think of addiction, you know, any addict has to hit, hit their bottom in order to change. And I'm hoping this is our bottom as a country, you know, and then I feel like it's not for me to say about if Can I see the change? It really we need to listen to people of color and to hear their experiences, you know. And again, on that, all I can do is try to listen and contribute and give what I can. You know, it's it's not about how bad I feel about this. It's like, how can I help things get better?
0: If there was one message that you'd like to leave listeners with today, what's, what's in your heart for them?
1: Well, like, I do believe, I mean, always we have to have hope and we have to have faith. I mean, as corny as it sounds, because if we don't, why go on? Right. <laughs> um, and we have to make that a practice and believe that these changes can be made. And and right now we have to actively make them. That's, I think, what we're being told by now is like, it's a shit show out there. we have got to make some changes, you know, and it's everyone's responsibility, um, which, you know, I used to not know that. And I have compassion for myself. I How was I to know that back then? that um, I could make a difference. I didn't feel like I had agency then even, you know, now I do. So with that, you know, I hope to help administer change. If
0: you're a white person wondering how you might be able to contribute to racial equality, find a link full of ideas down in the show notes. And if you're a person of color, we are thinking of you, listening to you, and we support you. To watch Jill's documentary, which I highly recommend, search for Fight Like a Girl on Amazon Prime. You can also take Zoom boxing classes with her with your camera on or off. So if you feel a little self-conscious, no worries. Learn more at flagboxingla.com or follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Morley. This week's listener question comes from Henrietta who wrote this, "'My body feels limp and static lately. I've been isolating for longer than most because I'm immunocompromised, disabled, and high risk for the virus. Prior to the past few months, I had not realized how much I relied on physical activity to feel sexy and turned on. Other than finding ways to be more active, please no fitness tips, are there other ways to feel connected to my body and my boners, (laughs) haha? I can masturbate, although physical limitations do make certain positions difficult. Lately, I just have not felt the urge. Henrietta, you are so awesome for sharing this question. I think your intention and your awareness, those already are huge and are going to serve you so well. Here's what Dr. Megan Fleming of greatlifegreatsex.com had to say.
2: Henrietta, thank you so much for your question. And I think the first thing I want to say is just to sort of normalize, and maybe you've heard a lot of that as well, but that you are certainly not alone in noticing sort of little or no libido or sexual interest at this time. In fact, I've been uh, quoted in several articles over these past few months, the latest in New York Magazine, their their online magazine, The Cut, and I'll have August... um, link it to the show notes, but the title of the article is What Happened to My Sex Drive. So, you know, in this time I've seen it usually go one of two ways. Either some people find themselves feeling particularly horny and using sexuality and giving themselves pleasure or pleasure with a partner as a means to sort of have a control or establish normalcy, or just to sort of regulate their mood, feel pleasure in their bodies. And then I've seen Equally, and in fact, in my experience, far more common is those who really feel disconnected and shut down, especially when they're really feeling sort of touch-deprived, sort of like yourself. It sounds like, you know, not being able to go outside or have any human contact or touch. And so, first of all, obviously, first and foremost, I know it's, I'm glad that you are taking care of yourself and recognizing that you're at higher risk um, so that you um you know, aren't un, in any way unnecessarily uh, acting in ways where you might contract the virus. Um, in fact, Betty Dotson during this time, it was an article that she was in in the New York Times sort of saying the safest sex is solo sex. And she's always, of course, been a huge uh, proponent of that. And so I always sort of say it starts with how do we help you jumpstart your inner sexy pilot light? Um, and that can start with, you know, what are your top turn-ons? You know, arouses both mental and physical. And so even though it's really not on your radar, I sort of say it's like a cold engine, like what might happen uh, when and if you, you know, pulled out some romance novels or read more explicit erotic Erotica, And nowadays, there's even audio erotica like Dipsia um, and many others apps and things like that. And so my first sort of thing I'd like you to do is exploration and really getting the opportunity to, in a sense, explore what we call your core erotic themes. Um, these are ones that, you know, Jack Morin writes about the secret logic of sexual arousal. Some of us have had sort of these um, core erotic themes since early childhood. Others develop later. Um, but the idea is that, you know, certain themes are sort of need to be kind of present or part of your turn on to feel fully sexually engaged. It's almost like your own personal and unique sort of sexual wiring. And it's a place that helps you to connect and inhabit within yourself, right, where you feel most sexually alive. So some common ones for you to think about, again, going back to peak sexual experiences you might have, you'll generally start to notice that there are themes there. Um, but uncommon, not uncommon ones, are of course, feeling, I think, the for most of us, feeling wanted and desired, it can be around the dominance and submission, feeling adored, praise and appreciation, uh, taken care of, worshipped, possessed, just going through a lot fast. Cause I really want you to take the time later and explore your own. Um, and I also want to say, even though I know you said not to think about, you know, exercise per se, but female embodiment practices, everything from like Sheila Kelly S factor to maybe on YouTube looking up belly dancing any sort of exercise and or breathing techniques that help you get into your body um, and feel all the sensations. Uh, Kundalini in particular sort of uses sound, mantra, energy healings, exercises, meditations, all to sort of release the trauma that we can be carrying in our sort of energetic body. And it sounds like... Um, I don't know what your level of disability is, but I can imagine you're holding a lot of tension in your body. So my real takeaway is first go to turn your mind on and creating the conditions that with sort of roaming hands, you know, imagine your hands sort of being uh, that of your greatest lover. Get out some lube, get out your sex toys if you have them, but just really dedicate time to waking up sensation. You know, is it light? Is it soft? Is it hard? Um, you know, do you want to explore temperature play? But really seen as an opportunity, um, Um, You know, you always hear me say, we know what we know, we don't know what we don't know. And so in this to really explore new turn-ons that ultimately, and when it's time and you're ready and it's safe, you can then share with a partner. As always, would love to hear how it goes. Thank you so
0: much, Dr. Megan. I love what she shared. And Henrietta, I'm going to offer you either Girl Boner Journal or the audiobook of Girl Boner because I think that writing or journaling verbally Um, can be really helpful. And even thinking about prompts about our sexuality, what turns us on, a lot of the things that Megan said, I think can be very useful and tapping into our turn-ons and and finding new ones. And I hope this does turn out to be an exciting time for you, um, challenges and all, because I think we can experience so much pleasure amid hardship and that it's medicinal, it's rebellion, it's beautiful, and you deserve it. I asked Jill Morley to weigh in for you as well. And she suggested meditating. She said, when you meditate, connect to all of your senses. What noises do you hear outside? What are you sitting on? How does that feel? What does it smell like when you are meditating? All of that helps ground you and connect you to your body by being fully present in your surroundings. I thought that was a really beautiful idea too. If you're enjoying Girl Bono Radio, please hit subscribe if you haven't and leave us a rating and review. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week. Girl Boner Radio is owned, operated, and executively produced by me, August McLaughlin, with technical producer and audio extraordinaire, Mackenzie Mazel, as part of the Period Podcast Network, an affiliate of Starburns Industries. Learn more about the Girl Boner podcast brand movement and book series at girlboner.org and more about Period at periodnetwork.com.